0: Hey guys, back here with Storytime with J.J. Dillon, joined by, of course, the Hall of Famer, J.J. Dillon. Today, J.J., we're going to talk about shots fired in the Monday Night War. And this was unique, J.J., because you were on both sides of that Monday Night War. So the first thing I want to ask you, one of the early shots that was taken was the Billionaire Ted skits. Do you remember these being brought up backstage at WWE?
2: Uh, not really. Uh, I, like Kevin Nash and Razor Ramon, uh, they're, you know, they were Scott Hall. I mean, they, they used their legal names so as not to infringe upon uh, any rights, but they kind of went into business for themselves. I mean, they did one that was a, uh, a parody on The Horseman that, uh, you know, maybe some people thought it was entertaining. And, you know, we... We didn't think it was entertaining because we always, we and I speak collectively, and I think I talk about everybody that was in the Horseman. We're very serious about our business, and it wasn't something that we found any humor in somebody making fun of.
0: So early on, uh, Vince McMahon had had some of these billionaire Ted segments uh, done to basically make fun of a lot of the people that were leaving for WWF to WCW. What what do you think motivated him to do that? Was it the fact that WCW was going head-to-head with them on Monday nights when they could have had virtually any other night of the week with Turner owning the company?
2: I think the issue with Vince McMahon and Ted Turner went further back and was much deeper. Um, Ted always had a thing where people that he was doing business with he liked to to have an interest in that business. He was willing to to buy an interest or what have you. And when Vince McMahon started with programming on the TBS network, Ted said something to Vince about buying into the company, and Vince slammed the door on that, and it created uh, tension between the two of them so that when WCW or I guess at that point it was still Jim Crockett promotions um, were maybe vulnerable, or there was some question about their stability, the programming, which was world championship wrestling, was still doing great ratings at that point. And Ted stepped in and actually bought Jim Crockett promotions to protect the program. And he called Vince McMahon and said, uh, Hey, now I'm, I'm, I'm a wrestling promoter. I'm in the wrestling. And Vince McMahon said, big deal. I'm still going to kick your ass. So there was tension going back that far. So I'm not surprised that uh, Vince McMahon probably had fun with the parodies at what he thought was Ted's expense.
0: During your time there, did Vince ever really speak of Ted Turner? And if so, uh, like in, in what light did he
2: speak of him? I don't remember. And uh, – My position was during the week, I worked in the office, suit and tie. Vince was hands-on, which was one of the things that surprised me the most when I first got there because I was used to working the territory system where everything was on a much smaller scale. And I used to wear 10 hats doing travel, doing talent uh, issues, what have you, but involved with booking creative and now all of a sudden at what was then Titan Sports before they went public, Vince had professionals who were specialists in each of those areas and they weren't necessarily wrestling fans. Uh, They were just very, very good at what they did. And Vince used to say he didn't require that the people that worked in these various departments or department heads to necessarily be wrestling fans. The only thing he, uh, demanded of them, is that they watch the program and at least be familiar with it.
0: There were a lot of, obviously, iconic moments that happened during that Monday Night War, the first of which, Lex Luger hopping over from WWF to WCW. How far ahead did WWF know about Luger leaving, or or did you all?
2: A lot of things happened that were uh, like very, very... Sud, uh, at one point, Lundra Blaze left and had the title and dropped it in the trash can. I mean, there was a, there were shots fired back and forth. And if contracts expired and somebody was a free agent and Vince had knowledge or the people, whoever was in charge at that point, this off or whatever, had, you know, and there may have been behind-the-scenes dialogue, which – I never wanted to get involved in because I never wanted to have any legal liability of tampering with somebody that was under contract at the time. But if you told me that it took place, I, in all honesty, would be surprised.
0: So Hall and Nash do leave. Uh, and at this point, WWF is is losing names pretty quickly. And they're, they're gaining a few too. You get Vader, you get Mark Mayer. You get a couple guys in but you've lost the likes of lex luger, you've lost hall, you've liked nat or you've lost nash. What was Vince McMahon's demeanor like at this point because Bret Hart took a sabbatical at this point too? Did he seem concerned or did he just like not sell it at all?
2: If he was concerned, he didn't visually show it even to his inner circle. Uh, Vince always was and I think to this day and I'm—I've not been around him for a number of years, for, for a consistent period of time to kind of get a read on it. But he was never one that gave the appearance of being vulnerable or 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 concerned about anything.
0: Also, uh, maybe about a year and a half after Hall and Nash leave, the Montreal screw job happens, and that n- maybe not necessarily a shot fired at WCW, but in the ring after the match, Bret Hart is. Motioning the WCW letters, and it's everybody knows he's heading over. You had switched sides at that point. What was the reaction among people at WCW about what went down?
2: You know, I I guess when you're in the business for half a century in some capacity or another, from when you're a fan up through uh, an active career managing, and then being on the executive side of it, nothing ever. Nothing ever surprised me. And in that particular thing, I knew that Brett was very proud of his Canadian heritage, the fact that he was held in high esteem by fans in Canada. and But Brett was also a businessman because Stu owned a territory. Brett knew the business side of it and the so-called do the right thing. And if he was the champion, Uh, I don't think it was ever an issue with Brett about legitimately dropping the title before he left. It's just that he wanted to have some voice in when, when he did it. And I, I don't even know that it was so, so much concern about who he was dropping it to more, more when, and he didn't want to do it in Montreal in a huge show in front of Canadian fans. Uh, I think he chose to, to have a voice in, in, in maybe picking another site. And I don't know if Vince uh, had distrust and thought, you know, well, you know, he's, I know his background. I know his father was a promoter. And I know the, the, the philosophy if you're dedicated to business, do the right thing. And he's saying all the right things. But I think Vince wanted to uh, cover his bases. So in that situation, uh, without Sean's knowledge without the, Brett's knowledge, and I, Sean later admitted that obviously he was in on it and the referee was in on it, and you know, they just you know they did what was considered a calling the business of false finish, where uh, Sean would would go for a move and you know and Brett would 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 be feeling the pain, but he wasn't <laughs> going to submit. And eventually he would make it to the rope to cause the hole to be broken. But the minute he was in the hole, the referee got down, jumped up, called for the bell. (laughs) And and at that point, I think Brett knew that he'd been had. And Sean immediately left the ring. The referee left the ring. And I guess Brett refused to leave the ring. How 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 do people
0: people within WCW feel about
2: that? Ah, wow. I think everybody was – was kind of shocked and they had a a they were doing a documentary if memory serves me right and so there were yes, people yes. there was a video crew there that was shooting it and so Vince went down the ringside because Sean was not going to leave and Vince went down there and when Sean saw or when Brett saw him I mean he just it was a hawker right in Vince's face and I thought, you know, I know that Vince loves the business and I don't know where he would draw the line. You know, when I see his son come off the top of a cage through a, an announcer's table and do some things that are incredibly high risk, God, I don't know if I'd ever want my son doing something like that. So Vince, Vince uh, and I don't know if that's a positive or a negative, would do sometimes things that you would think anybody with his stature, with his you know, financial security and his well being that like that. And then when they got out of the ring and got backstage and again there was a camera there, I mean Brett punched punched him, punched him in the face, gave Vince a black eye. And there were people who are skeptical. They say, Oh, you know, I mean, maybe this whole thing was staged. And yeah, yeah. There were people that thought that, but I thought just watching it, you know, uh, just a gut instinct opinion, that the way the finish happened was either somebody that was genius in in setting that up. Because if you're in the business, you could say, hey, man, it it looked like the guy got screwed. The fact that that Shawn Michaels bailed out and was gone. The referee raised the hand and was gone too and left Brett out there. And then what took place after with Vince coming out and everything, (laughs) you can look at it both ways and say it was genius the way it was laid out or Brett got screwed and he was one angry young man.
0: Were you backstage backstage when DX did the invasion invasion
2: of of WCW? I'm trying to think. They they came in and I was still in a position. It was before my relationship with Eric kind of soured and I was on good terms with both Hall and Nash. I never had any problem with him when I was in talent relations with what was in the WWF, got along with both of them. They were both very good businessmen. And when they got to WCW, the, The difference was that they were dealing with Vince McMahon and somebody that was a third generation, that the company was 24-7 a wrestling company. And Vince had that whole history and, and his approach with talent and everything was like day and night compared to WCW, where Eric Bischoff came in. Eric is a great salesman. And he sold himself to people who had no knowledge and just took him at face value. And a lot of the people really had failed along the way. People had been very successful in the Turner organization that got the job, failed, and it was uh, damaging to their, to their career and their legacy. So I think there was probably some relief from somebody like Eric came in. Yeah, and Jim Hurd initially, when Jim Hurd was the first one, uh, they, Jim Hurd, was the station manager in St. Louis when Sam Muchnick's program was uh, taped at the Chase, and when Sam Muchnick was president of the National Wrestling Alliance, a really uh, a very very respected figure. So the people at TBS said, "Oh, wow! Here's here's Jim Hurd, who's one of our one of us. He was a television station manager, and he's a wrestling guy too because he was tight with Sam Muchnick. So." They came in, and in truth, <laughs> Jim Hurd was better off staying in the pizza business and the wrestling. Were was you still? Peter stayed in the pizza business.
0: Were you still under WCW contract when WWF bought them out?
2: My contract had expired, and during the due diligence process, people from TBS interviewed everybody of all departments, myself included, and the theme that we kept hearing was this is a win-win situation because we have, first of all, deep pockets and and, and solid financial resources, so that, that concern can be put to rest. In terms of uh, production equipment, they had state-of-the-art everything. And the third thing that they talked a lot about was their ability, because of all their other programming, to be able to go to markets that maybe WCW wasn't in at that time, say, like, it, wide, it opened Europe wide open, because they could then take other programming that was very popular to Europe and package wrestling in with it. And the, all of these pluses were, were mentioned in the due diligence process, but the one thing they kept saying, however, you people are the experts in the wrestling business, And that's something that we're not going to touch. And, of course, the ink wasn't even dry. I think November 1 of 88 is when the deal became finalized. And all of a sudden there were closet fans that had positions in the Turner organization that uh, all of a sudden, you know, were a voice in how they thought things should be done. And there was one guy named Jeff Carr who, I don't know what his title was, but I remember him saying to me, I know I got the answer for ratings going through the ceiling. I said, "Really? What is that?" He said, "I would put Flair and Sting on television. Can you imagine the ratings?" I said, "Yes," but I said, "What are you going to? What would you then put on the week after?" And I'd like to know ahead of time what you were going to put on the week after that, because our thinking has to be long term, and they they call that hot shot booking where. Yes, it's very tempting to take something that you know is a guaranteed winner, but then you have to think, are you going to pay the price for it after? And those people, uh, uh, they, they all of a sudden did what they said they weren't going to do. In 2001,
0: in 2000, when Vince McMahon bought out, bought out WCW, did
2: you remember
0: Or had your contract already expired with WCW that you had signed in 97?
2: I'd had a contract but uh, Bischoff had run the company almost into the ground in the sense that the big difference in terms of managing talent, Vince, after TV did not go to where the talent stayed and because a lot of the talent had the rooms paid for, they, many of them were in the, in the same hotel, and guys stayed where they wanted to, and but Vince did not go to where the majority of guys stayed, and then hang out with them in the bar. Vince, like even in the garden, might might take a small group of people from his inner circle and go to a, a particular steakhouse that he really liked. And but that was unusual, and there weren't other talent that were part of that part of that group. On the other side, Eric Bischoff would go to the hotel where we put up most of the guys, where we were paying for the rooms, go to the bar, get hammered. And then the guys would sit back and watch him and wait until they realized that, you know, he was uh, three sheets to the wind. And then they would go up to him and all of a sudden want to discuss yeah. business. And I can't count the number of times where I would get a phone call the next morning. And it would be so-and-so. And he'd say, I talked to... Uh, I wanted to talk to Eric because we had a conversation last night. Well, hold on, let me see if he's available. And I would call Eric and I'd say, Eric, I got so and so on the phone. And said you had a conversation with him side in the bar. And Eric would say, Ah, uh, yeah, I kind of vaguely remember. Um, why don't you get him? Go tell him I'm not available. Get with him and tell him that I was tied up in some high-level meeting, and I wanted you to find out from them what the gist of our conversation was and invariably it was well you know my my tag team partner somebody gets first class and they get their hotel paid for and they get their rental car paid for or it might be a salary issue and they would tell me well eric said i was going to get first class airfare my hotel will be paid for my rental car paid. and i'd say all right hold on just hold on just a second i got another call i'll be right back with you i call eric and say eric he says that last night he talked to you about uh, first-class hotel rental car, and you said yes. So now he's calling with, you know, that's what he feels feels that you committed to it last night. Well, maybe I did, and I guess if I did, I did. So go ahead and tell him that uh, you'll put the wheels in motion. And that story repeated itself more times than I want to remember. And the cumulative effect was that it put the company in debt. And a lot of time they, they they became part of a contract, so that when the momentum swung that swung the other way, and the company, uh, the company at one point was looking, and this was right after AOL Time Warner, the, it was the that that merger aspect where they were, somebody looked at the numbers and they were projected to lose eighty million dollars, and then the mandate yeah, okay. come down, cut 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 everywhere you can. The problem was the cuts were all at the lower echelon, and all the higher level guys had guaranteed deals. And when they did all the cutting, the number came back to sixty million with a projected sixty million for the following year. And that's when AOL Time Warner said, "You know, for those kind of numbers, it's just the division we don't need to be in the wrestling business." And they pulled the plug.
0: What are your long-lasting memories of the competition? Between WWF and WCW and the environment that it caused backstage in each of those companies?
2: I don't remember so much about the WWF aspect of it, but I remember more of um, what happened with the, the, the WCW. Um, I had some issues that uh, were, were personal events, which was the foundation of why I I was my decision to resign. I resigned on the spot on a Friday and was gone. Did not have another job, had not talked to WCW. Um, I made a, I actually didn't have a job. I had sold my house, took a loss on the house, and I had, my children were, the twins were not quite four or just turned four and one of whom had special needs. And then another daughter that was two. And so I had a huge responsibility. Um, Had a note to the WWF that was uh, not secured. And so I was able to sell the house. Had trouble selling the house. Took me a year and a half. Took a loss. $50,000 loss on the house. And at settlement, I had about $20,000 to my name. So... There are people who thought I was crazy, that I'm, I'm in the job that a lot of guys in the business would be in their estimation a dream job, of where they would love to be. But you know, sometimes things aren't what they appear to be. And I had a private conversation with Vince because I met him face to face in his house, which nobody knew that I was there when he offered me a job. And then I when I made the decision which I made the decision a year and a half before that. I just had to sell that house and get out from under it so that I'd be free to go. And I did not have a contract. I was an employee with benefits and what have you. And I, I walked on a Friday. Unfortunately, Shane was being married the next day, and a lot of their family and guests were in from out of town. So it was uh, – I mean, I could see it from the, the McMahon family perspective. But I also had my perspective of my my obligations to take care of my family, and I, you know, I, I even told Vince I said if I if it's just me, I could survive living in a phone booth if I had to. But the minute that the well-being of my family is put at risk, that that changes all the rules. And I just reached the point where I couldn't work for him even one more day to get through the wedding on the weekend, and was gone. Didn't have a job. I had the house, so all the furniture was moved. Two cars, and you had to you have to either put it in storage or give the moving company an address. So my wife flew to Atlanta the week before, uh, and it was like, okay, I'm sure I'm going to have an overture to WCW at some point. They may or may not be interested. I don't know. Never met Bischoff. I was friends with Jerry Jarrett over in Nashville, and thought that i could engage in conversation with him but i was i didn't want anybody to know what what i was doing for fear that it would get out and then i figured if wcw has no interest if jared doesn't have anything i'm well on my way towards orlando with all the entertainment things that they had gone down there and i've been in an entertainment business so i would kind of be at one part of a triangle where if it didn't happen there uh, I would go off and I remember calling Tony Schiavone and he said, I'll talk to Bischoff, Bischoff said, set a meeting up. And then when I met with Bischoff, there was a hiring freeze because that merger had just taken place with Time Warner. And there was, he couldn't, have could have hired me. And I went in there not knowing what to expect. And I, I, I guess, I guess I expected that if we did engage in some kind of thing and there was interest in me and I, and in hindsight, I didn't realize that here's a here's a vice president with the WWF at that point before they went public who now is out on the free market that it would have been very difficult for Bischoff to explain to the suits at TBS even if they knew nothing about the wrestling business how somebody that, that in that high profile position would Vince and, and was available that you wouldn't want to hire him. So he told me, he said, what I can do is I'll put you on uh, uh like a, a consultant for a month or two, mm-hmm. whatever it was until that uh, hiring freeze ended and then, and then be hired. So that's how it played out. But when that meeting took place, I, I kind of thought that Eric would, again, I wasn't about to any divulge any proprietary information that I could have been sued for, but he could have asked. He,
0: he did, he did allege that you did,
2: which I did. not And yeah, I expected uh, to be asked by Eric Bischoff more generic questions about, you know, how do you plot your strategy? How, you know, things about how the system worked, not specifics in terms of numbers that would have been prior to. And I got none of that from Eric. All I got was him talking more than asking. And it was like, how, I don't know how much, how long Vince could hang on? He's got to be on the ropes what else can he come up with? You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna put him under, and it was like he was uh, obsessed with the fact that that was what he was gonna do, and I just sat there. I wasn't about to tell him because I needed a job to take care of my family. Yeah. I wasn't about to tell him, hey, he's third generation wrestler, he eats and sleeps the business, and I don't know a whole lot about your background, but. If I was looking in Vegas and I had to choose where I was going to put my money, you know, I'd have to put my money on Vince. But I certainly wasn't <laughs> going to tell Bishop that because, hey, I, you know, I, I had my family to think of. So, is it true is it that, that Kevin Nash recommended you for that spot, that spot as well? As well? Um, I never asked him. It wouldn't surprise me because I had a great relationship with Kevin and with uh, with with Scott. And the only thing is, once we got there, I remember it at one of the early, early TVs or whatever, and sat at a table with just Kevin Nash, Hall, and myself. And they looked at me in the face and they said, you know, please do not tell him what kind of money we there. I said, no, of course not. And they wanted to be able to play their cards without Bischoff having too much knowledge in terms of whatever they told him, you know, questioning it. When was the next
0: time you spoke to Vince McMahon after you left to go to WCW?
2: I spoke to Vince the night I walked out. He, he, I, he was blindsided.
0: And well, after, after that, I mean, like after you had come on to WCW, how long was it after that? Was it years? Was it?
2: Yeah, it was years. The next time I, I was contacted WCW had gone out of business and I'd never had conversation with Vince during that time. They went out of business. I I did have a contract with WCW, which they they honored, and they honored everybody else's contracts. And I then, I think I I was less than a year, and I was making very good money. And then um, went through a divorce because... big money was coming to a grinding halt. Jerry Jarrett at that point had a construction company that had two major projects in Atlanta. They were building a high school, a small high school, private high school, and they were re-imaging. It's right when all the Amoco stations were going over to BP. He had a contract and he went from having like three people working for him because he owned property and did things uh, over in Nashville. And now he's in Atlanta with these two major projects. And had a payroll of about fifty some people. Didn't want to move over there, so he had me because we had a great relationship. He said, "I, I trust you," and so he. I worked out of my home and I used to go out to the sites and just make sure everything was all right and then the, the paychecks would be FedEx to me every Friday and then I would go out to the job sites and see that everybody everybody got paid. And that was fine for two years until uh, high school was finished. Uh, the reimaging contract there was some there was another in between contractor and Jarrett was actually a subcontractor and there was some dispute and so the thing was on hiatus for a while, and Jerry had no 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 major business in Atlanta. All of a sudden, he went from three to fifty three, back to three, and moved them. And after two years, I'm now out of work and uh, looking at a divorce, and having to figure out. At the, at that point, I would have been uh, sixty one, and when you're, you're spent the greater part of your life in a niche business and at the end of it, after my active career, been in the executive part of it at the highest level with 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 both both companies. And then you go out in the real world uh, and look for for something. Um, they know they know who you are and they're excited to meet you. But in terms of and I was I was willing more than willing to adjust my lifestyle and I wasn't looking for. High in the sky. I just wanted to be able to provide for my family and have benefits, and so it was. Uh, it was a little bit of a trying time. I had to leave Atlanta, where my family was, because of the divorce, and uh, my mother had was in, which is why I'm in Delaware. She was originally from Delaware. My father passed away in 2001, and so she was living by herself in a small house, two bedrooms. It was paid for. And, um, my father was 85 when he passed, and my mother was, she, I was here probably three or four years, and she had a stroke and passed at the age of 92, but she bowled until she was 90 and very active. And My, my doctor tells me that I'm I'm blessed with great genes. It's something that you're, you're either, you inherit them, they, they, somebody can't give them to you, you can't buy them, and so I've been very fortunate to, I've had knee replacement my left knee 10 years ago and my right within the last year. And other than that, I've been, I mean, I, every wrestler that doesn't say he has a bad neck is, if he's been in the business any length of time, I sit and watch TV and I I find myself watching TV like this because it takes, I realized that somebody said, well, the reason you're doing that is because it's taking pressure off your neck. Because my hand used to tangle and sometimes go to sleep. And I had lower back, but nothing that I would ever want to go and, and haven't looked at it, considered surgery. So I'm very, very fortunate that uh, next month I'm, I'm going to be 75, and I'm thankful that, uh, that I have the good health that I have.
0: During your time at, at WWF, they had some interesting characters, some cartoonish characters, per se, that maybe we hadn't seen before. I, I, I know you were at working. The, at the WWF or WCW? WWF. I mean, WCW had its fair share as well. but
2: Like you, like maybe like the gobbledygooker?
0: The gobbledygooker for sure was one. Uh, do you remember that idea being thrown
2: about? Um, as I said, Vince was hands-on in every aspect of the business, in the office during the week. But none of the creative was addressed during the week. That was all done on the weekend, casual dress, at Vince's home. And in the winter months, we'd be in his formal living room. Summer months, we'd be outside on a, a, a cabana overhang with a bank of phones. And, you know, the, the pool would be there and didn't see Shane so much. He would be out running around with his pals. He was a little bit older than Stephanie. But I I basically watched Stephanie grow up from, I guess she was maybe nine years old, ten years old, and, and watched, watched her grow up. They'd be out there playing and splashing in the pool while we, we would be working. So all the creative was done. On the weekends, Vince took credit for everything that <laughs> was good, never took any of the heat for anything that was bad. And I remember the gobbledygooker. Um, you know, there was this egg, and Gene Oakland was out there. And when the egg popped open, I don't know what the fans anticipated at that point, whether it was going to be a sting or some something that was going to be monumental and impactful. And this turkey or whatever it was jumped out and uh, I, I have such great respect for Gene Oakle and, and he was there having to conduct an interview with uh, this gobbledygooker And it, it, I don't know if you know that character made it through the hour, but I had some input on some others. Uh, I remember Papa Shango, um, yeah, yeah. And I thought, wow, Papa Shango, you know, he was this like voodoo type of guy, and I even suggested <laughs> that all, all of a sudden, this is before the Undertaker, that all of a sudden the lights go out, and after the opponent's been Announced, and when the lights suddenly come up, there's the opponent flat out in the other corner with his feet on fire, and I thought, oh, this is this is, this has got to be different, and and I guess uh, the fans weren't as excited about it as I was. So, you know, there were things that, and I I had been to Africa on a safari, and so when Vince had the idea of reviving uh, Tony Atlas's, um, that this with a shield and a spear. I gave him the name Saba Simba because we wanted something that sounded African and I'd been there and Saba uh, is number seven Is number seven and Simba's lion. So it was like seven lions is uh. what the literal interpretation of Saba Simba was. But the fans looked at Saba Simba and they still saw Tony Atlas and it wasn't something that they just embraced.
0: You want to talk about excited about Papa Shango and our viewers won't be able to see me, but you will, JJ. Oh, I keep, I keep a Papa Shango action figure <laughs> on my desk. One of the few decorations
2: I have in my office. Oh, you hold that great value. And I saw him recently uh, out in Vegas. He lives in Vegas. and uh, I mean, he was the godfather after that. So he's had a couple of incarnations and yeah, he's, he's not only that not only that,
0: but as the godfather, he became the good father, which was like the censored version. He had comma. He had like a even a different version of comma. He's made it work multiple times, uh, that guy. Yes. A question I had about the gobbledygooker, why put Hector Guerrero in that outfit? Why not just the normal guy? Was there a plan for him to wrestle?
2: I'm I'm sure that in Vince's mind he envisioned that yes. And so Hector was somebody that was there who was a was a polished performer. So if you if you eventually get to the point where this character has to get in the ring and wrestle, certainly you would want to know that somebody's in there who who you don't have to train somebody that's never wrestled before. Or switch somebody in there that maybe's taller, shorter and doesn't walk the same or look the same. I'm I'm sure that was part of the thought process.
0: Also, in 1996, uh, right before you left, there was like an influx of guys. There was Barry Windham, Tracy Smothers, Bill Irwin, these guys who had made it work at, it, whether it was on the territory or at high levels like Barry Wyndham, that were brought in, but they were given names like The Goon and The Stalker and Freddie Joe Floyd. And the Widowmaker. Do, do you happen to know... Do you happen to know the reasoning behind that? Even Terry Gordy was the executioner. Do you know the reasoning behind that? Did, did Vince just want to make things fresh? Did he not think that people would know who these
2: people were? It would all had to do with the with the rights to the persona and the name. And there were exceptions like Ric Flair and I'm going to say Fred Hart, but like Steve Austin. I mean, he still was Steve Austin, but the marketing – and, and the thing that was copyrighted and the likeness was the Stone Cold character. And that's why everything was Stone Cold, Stone Cold, and the T-shirts with the, the verse on it. And, and so every character that came in, Vince had a way that he didn't embrace something that he did not originate and create. In other words, he wouldn't bring the road warriors in and, and immediately push them to the top. Instead, he created his own version of Road Warriors, which was demolition. So he had the rights to those names and likeness and everything in terms of marketing, licensing, and merchandising. Why do you
0: think there was a period where every wrestler had to have an alternate job? Like Man Mountain Rock was a rock star. Duke the Dumpster Drosy was, was a trash man. Henry Godwin was a hog farmer. I oh, was, it was uh, a tax man. Yeah, why? Why do you think that? Because I mean, today Vince wouldn't like that because Vince wants his guys to be larger than life. He wants them to be above having day jobs. But back then, it was standard procedure.
2: Yes, uh, and in some cases, like with with the Undertaker, when uh, Percy came in and become his manager. He was a licensed mortician. Yeah. So the Paul Bearer was kind of an extension of something that he
0: was comfortable oh, with. Even, even even the Undertaker was a guy having a job because they had vignettes of him working as an undertaker. And so I mean he something even
2: except, Yeah, yeah, I remember.
0: Needless to say, he made it work a little bit better than Duke the Dumpster Drossy did, but yeah. uh
2: and Skinner was yeah. uh, was another one. Uh, yeah, they they all and, and like the big boss man, Ray Trailer yeah, And the Mountie, you know, rest his soul, was uh, was a great athlete, but he was a correctional officer. And and Vince would often talk to him and say, "Tell me about yourself. What did you do? What other jobs did yeah. you have before?" And then a lot of times that would trigger Vince then to. See them, and, and maybe he never sat down and, and spoke about it, and about why he did it. But I think if somebody like a big boss man had been a correctional officer or in, in law enforcement, it was easy for him to then adopt that character and all the nuances and everything that went with it because he, he, he actually had, had been a part of his life. So he, I think maybe in Vince's mind, he thought that that would help them live the character better because in reality, that, that had been part of their past.
0: Obviously, one I want to talk about is The Undertaker. He came in, in at Survivor Series 1990. He did a dark match before that as well, but he had a run before that. Had you met The Undertaker before he came into WWF?
2: Not that I can recollect, no. And, and I... And do you- I did not, you know, people would, I I did not look at, at the other, when I was working with WCW, I never watched the WWF product. When I went to work for Vince, I no longer watched the WCW. And I never felt that I could do my job to the best of my ability if I was reacting to what somebody else was doing. I rather looked at what my job was and what my challenge was, and focus all my attention on doing that to the best of my ability. So I did not see Mark Calloway before he came in the first time. And when he came in, like me, that meeting was in private events' house. How'd that meeting go? It went very good. I mean, he's an impressive guy. He's big, you know, at had the size and uh, um, just, you know, some. In the business, they call it the "it" factor, and if you round the business on the executive side, it's hard to um, to describe. You know, to find the words to describe, and eventually, like it's oh, it's just I don't know. I can't I can't explain it, but he's got it, and it's it's like a, it's I guess another word for natural charisma. And he had that, and I think whatever Vince's first first reaction was, he thought maybe like, maybe you could be a Viking, you know, with the helmet with the horns and the Berserker, basically. I, I, well, I don't I don't know that there was that connection, but he just saw this big guy and 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 why you know why what Vince saw in him, you know, he Vince had a very creative mind, and and he he had a department that he would then take someone and turn them over to this department and say, okay, look at, look at them, look at their, their build, their body, their features, what they do and play with it and feed me some ideas. And he would then a lot of times take something that they, that they would suggest that they saw in them because they're looking at it from a different perspective. They were not, not necessarily wrestling people. They were looking more at like, taking somebody and casting them as a, as a, as a character. And, and I will say this, um, to me, you know, in, in, as I look back for my years and I was there before they went public. So I, I was there when it was the WWF for just short of eight years. And then I was with WCW for five years and before they went out of business. But in all of the years that went by, my opinion was, and I, I feel that I, 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 I've i got some credibility when I say it, I think that The Undertaker is the greatest persona, character, however you want to define it, that, that was ever with the WWF size WWE. No, hands down. Yeah, and, yeah, and I think that the, 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 he the,
0: he and the character, they go hand no, in hand. you got to have to, that so for him to get to the degree that he 13. did What's but so amazing? you had him, World Class had him, and New Japan had him, and didn't find that that special thing. Did that surprise you that even no. though the Undertaker character wasn't around then, did it surprise you that they
2: missed out on him? Vince again was a wrestling business twenty four seven and third generation. They knew how to make, they knew how to recognize talent, and then how to make stars out of talent, and. Uh, the people at WCW. I mean, y- you mentioned the Undertaker, and you think about the people that came out of there. Stone Cold Steve Austin came out. Of there. Chris Jericho came out of there. Mick Foley came out of there. Uh, I mean, there's there a lot of people who just. Hall Nash
0: came out of there and then went back.
2: Yes, were there and 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 that was another part too that Vince pioneered. Um, Licensing and marketing, and the guys that were there did extremely well. Every quarter, they would get a printout that would be like a small book. and on the back would be a check, all broke down on what their what the product was. If it was something that they got a big share because it was maybe a, a DVD on their career, where you know they got most of it, or you know, however the percentages broke down. And I mean, it would even be products that went out that were then some that were returned as a, as, a, as a credit back against it. I mean, it was all laid out there based on, on their contractual agreements. And in the back was uh, those guys had some – I remember them saying that the Iron Sheik that one year when action figures were were a big, big deal, he made more money from his licensing and merchandising than he made from his in-ring appearances. And when the guys got to – like when Holland Nash got to WCW – they were accustomed to that, that, that quarterly check for licensing and merchandise. So they made a sweet deal with Eric Bischoff for their wrestling talent. And then after some time went by, they went back to Bischoff and they said, you know, we, we got a substantial amount of money above our wrestling contract for licensing and merchandise. You're trying to get it launched, but nothing's happening. So you really need to make it up to us in some other way. And the only thing that we can see is make an adjustment to our wrestling contract because we're not getting that other money. And what argument could he have? Well, no, I don't agree with that because they tried and just never, never got it launched off the ground. So all the Nash went back in and again, hoo, played the fiddle and uh, kept redoing their contracts, getting more and more money.
0: When a guy like The Undertaker walks in and he's not found his big, big break in wrestling until this point, and he had been wrestling for six years, does Vince McMahon look at him after that first meeting and say, this is a guy that we'll be able to lean on for a while, or is it just a, well, we'll see how it goes type of thing?
2: I think it's a work, it is a work in progress. that That you may envision a level of success with a guy, but sometimes... I mean, I can relate to The Horseman. That was a spontaneous thing that was not something that was the brainchild of of creative. It just, it was a spontaneous thing that the fans picked up on. And we never, never in you know, our wildest dreams imagined that it would become as big as it became or last as long as it did. Same thing with the individual characters uh, at at the WWF slash WWE. And The Undertaker... What to me is, and I, I I have so much respect for him professionally and as a person, because he is a great guy. But when you think about what he did as that character, he, did, he didn't he did do much. But what he did, he did well. When he And he wasn't the first one to walk the top rope, as big as he was. Don Jardine, the spoiler, walked the top rope uh, long before The Undertaker did. And the spot where they would do something devastating to him and he would lay in there, and all of a sudden, when he would sit up, that roof would blow off the building. Something as simple as that. And then he he morphed over time. You know, he became you know, he more tattoos. He became a biker for a while. It was still The Undertaker, but it was something that was added to that. You know, more tools in his toolbox where he, he was still doing the same things, but it wasn't it just a rehash of the same old thing forever undertaker got a short-lived championship
0: run about a year in did that shock you because that didn't it wasn't the type of thing you saw a lot i mean people remember the ultimate warrior and stuff but he was he was a few years in and that that was even kind of quick but the undertaker had a short-lived like couple of day run uh in 1991 Did it shock you that Vince was so quick to go with him in that spot even?
2: Uh, not really because when I first went there, they were running three tours every night. And they were doing, I think, four major pay-per-views. And then it expanded from there. So wrestling is an athletic soap opera that's 52 weeks out of the year that is never ending. You know, everything that we see with any television show, regardless of whatever your favorite is, Game of Thrones or whatever, it, it, it has a season and then it has a break and then it comes back and tries to recapture their audience, but wrestling never ends. And so that's a challenge from the creative side to perpetuate that. And what you try to avoid is the big highs and the big valleys that you that – you, you're better off if you can kind of keep a steady thing. And it's still going to be uh, cyclical at times where you, you get a little bunch, a little bump because somebody really catches fire or all of a sudden just things run their course faster than you thought they would. And you don't have something else hot and ready. Uh, I think that, to me, that's why I'm still a fan. It's still the greatest business business in the world, but um, it, it it's like Andre the Giant. Andre the Giant was a great, great drawing card. You didn't want him going after the Chasing the World title because you want the World title on somebody else so that you have two things to put on the marquee, a title match, and wow, the eighth one of the World, Andre the Giant. And I think Undertaker would be another example. That Yes, he, he did have a short run as a title thing, but that was – and I don't know where Vince's head was at that time, why he did that, but that was never going to be the focus of, of what his goal was like, to be world champion. He was to be the Undertaker.
0: As we As wrap we up wrap on up the up Undertaker
2: for now, now uh, and I want,
0: and to, I approach want to approach to it put later put on at length, but it seemed like they had almost a monster's gallery for Undertaker. Anybody they could find bigger than him, that, that's the guy he's going against. Did they have to do that to get sympathy for the guy? Because, I mean, he's a dead man alive who doesn't feel pain, and he's seven feet tall. You're kind of limited in how you can make people feel sorry for the guy. So they they dragged a bunch of giants out there.
2: That That's always been, I don't want to call it a problem, but a reality of the business. I mean, I'd go back to Bruno Sammartino, who had that incredible mm-hmm. run where he was going to the garden and, doing incredible business, sellout records that will never be matched. And most times back in in that era, they would have a guy who was the monster of, the, uh, of that particular run, and usually it would be three matches culminating where they thought, May, is this the guy that's going to finally take Bruno down? And then finally at the end, Bruno would prevail. But meantime, they would be building the next monster underneath, who would either be beating up on Tony Parisi or Dominic DeNucci As that that was a stepping stone. Oh my God, you know and they're they're Bruno's paisans, and, and and now what? You know what's going to happen? And and really, the, that's what happened with Goldberg. Goldberg, his football career uh, ended because he of his knee injury. That's what brought him to WCW and a contract at the Power Plant. The problem was that he never, ever had a chance to really learn how to perform. And you, it's like a baseball player that in spring training can go in the batting cage, and, but until the season starts and they're out there in front of live pitching in a, in a competitive environment, that's, that's when the cream rises to the top. And Bill Goldberg never had that chance because there was no place for him to go learn. WCW had no live event schedule that, that did any kind of business. They never scratched the surface pay per view wise. And if you remember back, that's when Stone Cold was so hot. And if you took a picture of Stone Cold and put Bill Goldberg's picture right next to it, if you look at him, it was like looking in a mirror. Both of them had the shaved head, had the goatee, had a simple, sim- similar body. With the, with the big bulging traps. And so I think, and Bill had that it factor. But then when Bill got out there, Kevin Sullivan was, who's one of the brilliant minds in the history of our business that never gets credit for how really brilliant he is. They they just look at him as the, the guy with that was uh, an incarnation of the devil playing on the sand with the bones and everything with the eyes rolled back in his head. <laughs> He was an altar, a Catholic altar boy from Boston, but he was a brilliant, brilliant mind in our in our business. And when Goldberg finally, by necessity, was put on television, I remember the first week was, well, what are we going to do? If he's out there very long at all, he's going to expose himself as to really how little he knows. Well. Let's have a big fancy entrance, you know, with the sparklers and everything. And he'd come out and exhale, and it would look like he was blowing smoke or blowing fire. And then he would get to the ring, you know, kind of like the same thing with the with the Ultimate Warrior with the streamers and run into the ring and shaking the ropes. And then when the bell rang, he didn't do a whole lot. All civil, no stake. Yes. Okay. That's yeah, very good. You're very observant. And uh, <laughs> but with Goldberg, it was like, well, let's just have him beer somebody and jackknife them and one, two, three. And wow, the people just exploded. And then as I talked before about in this business, yes, you can do something, but you have to think about the second week, the third week. And I remember the second week, all, the problem didn't go away. We still got to, what are we going to do? Well, it worked last week. Let's, hey, that makes it different. Then Let's do it again. And then all of a sudden it took on a life of its own where the, fans started talking about the record of consecutive quick victories. And then that became the story. The Goldberg goes in there and wipes people out. And this consecutive win number, whatever it was. And they were, they were tracking it. And as I said, Kevin Nash was a brilliant, brilliant guy. And he got, (laughs) he, he, he got with Bishop and he said, even Superman, with all his powers, and he could fly and he could do everything. There was one thing that he was vulnerable to, and what was that? It was kryptonite. Bill Goldberg has got to have a kryptonite. The people are going to reach some point where they're going to say, "Hey, well, there's nobody can beat him," and they're going to lose. It. They're going to lose interest. And Kevin sold the idea that we've got to show a human side to him. He has to be vulnerable. Somebody has to beat him. And, you know, and it's kind of like just stood there like as big as he was and as awesome as Kev was. That, you know, I guess maybe I, you know, I, I put my card on the uh, out on the table because, you know, I, I'm big enough that, that people were going to not be shocked if it happened. And then that's going to make Bill vulnerable. And now that people – and relate to him more because there is a human to him.
0: How do you think it. that Bill thought about Kevin Nash ending that streak?
2: No, I never talked to Bill. And I think Bill knew that from day one, he didn't have the background to be able to say, hey, I feel strongly about this or that, or that's the right thing or not the right thing because – he had been put in that position every step of the way and to all of a sudden say, wow, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm this huge star and I think this is a mistake. To Bill's credit, he, he never did that. And he said, I guess maybe these people know better than I do and I'll go with the flow.